Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Turn please to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll read the first three verses. We're going to focus on one phrase, really, this morning. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the reading of God's holy word. We're going to look at this phrase, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We don't easily associate joy with the cross, but we're told here that this was the very motivation, the very strength that sustained Christ to which he looked even as he endured the cross. So we want to study this phrase. Now, interesting, in November 1975, uh, the new collection of men that made up the uh, budding American army uh, had the British troops under siege in Boston. However, things were not going so well, of course, for either side at that point, but the Americans were beginning to suffer. They had been there several months. Uh, things were getting colder and colder. Morale was waning. Tensions running high. Fights were breaking out among the men. Uh, stories told by McCullough of uh, one snowball fight that ended up in a pretty brutal uh, goings-on. Uh, they had left their families and businesses behind. Uh, Winter setting in. Reenlistments were alarmingly few, he says. Uh, Out of 11 regiments and 10,000 men that were in the army, at one point, uh, only 1,000 had had re-enlisted. And then by mid-November, only about 2,500 had re-enlisted. And then by uh, the 24th of December, Christmas Eve, uh, the temperature drops into the 20s, the low 20s, and a foot of snow falls. And Washington really didn't know what in the world he was going to do. He didn't know how he's going to hold his men together at that point. Then, on New Year's Day, the first copies of King George's address to Parliament on October the 26th had just gotten to the United States or to the colonies at that point. And in this speech, George set forth how they were going to show the Americans a thing or two. Uh, We were called traitors, and there was a hint that they would enlist foreign help to come against the Americans. Well, rage, indignation, 
poured out among the Americans at every point. It raced through the armies. Their speech was burned in public. And Nathaniel Green wrote this fervent letter to his friend Samuel Ward in Philadelphia. Heaven hath decreed that tottering empire Britain to irretrievable ruin. And thanks to God, since providence hath so determined, America must raise an empire of permanent duration. Supported upon the grand pillars of truth, freedom and religion, encouraged by the smiles of justice and defended by our own patriotic sons. Permit me then to recommend from the sincerity of my heart, ready at all times to bleed in my country's cause, a declaration of independence and call upon the world and the great God who governs it to witness the necessity and propriety and rectitude thereof. Perhaps as many as 9,000 of the 10,000 either stayed or returned soon after because of what had been declared. In fact, on that day, Washington declared a new army, which was in every point of view continental. And so it was called the, the Continental Army. And there was a crash of 13 gun salute and the new flag with 13 stripes, red and white and a blue corner that uh, indicated British colors. This represented the new army. And interestingly, when the British in Boston saw it first flying from Prospect Hill, they thought they mistook it at first for a flag of surrender. Not quite. (laughs) Here we are, right? (laughs) I make this point to say that there had to be several things at that point, whether whatever your view, you know, you may be a loyalist. I don't know. Uh, But whatever your view of the political stand that was taken, uh, none can deny the fact that this kind of letter uh, galvanized what may have just fallen apart. Otherwise, Uh, there was a. Uh, capture of a British merchant sh- uh, uh, supply ship that was critical in the morale. But the point is, these men had to have something truly to fight for. They had to have, I would say, a joy set before them. They had to have a reason, a hope. We don't think of Christ in those terms very often. We think more or less of just the pure uh Character, of course, that he had in just doing what was right. And we don't think about our Lord himself being sustained only by hope and joy of what was to result from this horrible thing that he was about to face. And I hope that that will be an encouragement to you. That our Lord, as a man, had to have a hope set before him. And it's very clear, for that hope, for that joy, he endured. So I think it's very important for us to ask, what made up that joy? What constituted that joy that Christ Christ had? And we can't fully explore it, but we'll at least touch on a few things that must have made up that joy. Uh, First of all is the joy of doing his Father's will. And that's something that will sustain us. The joy of doing the Father's will. In John 4.34, 
Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Now, when he says my food is to do the will of God, uh, the will of my father, of course, it means my nourishment, my satisfaction. It's my life. It's my passion. It's what makes life life to me. To do the will of my father, which is the same as saying it is my joy to do his will. And so for the joy set before him means in part the joy of fulfilling the will and purpose of his father. And in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus lets us in on a kind of eternal agreement between the father and the son. And we hear him say what the will of the father is. I've come down from heaven, he says in verse 38 of John 6, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In other words, he's saying, my food is to do the will of my father. Then he says, this is the will of him who sent me. Of course, we're on the edge of our seat that I should lose nothing of all he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. The father has given me a people. I'm going to die for them. I'm going to rescue them and I'm not going to lose any of them. And I'm going to gather them to myself. And so the joy set before Christ was the salvation of those people the Father had sent him. That was the Father's will. I want you to save my people. And so it was his joy, his, his food to do the will of his Father. And you could say that the Father was completely taken up with rescuing his people. It was his passion to rescue his people. And so it was the son's passion as well. His joy to accomplish the father's purpose. So his joy is to do the will of his father. Secondly, his joy is to glorify his father's name. His joy to glorify his father's name. In John 12, as he's anticipating the death and the cross, John 12, verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, this hour of, of death and, and loss and judgment and punishment on behalf of, of sinners. He says, Well, I cry, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. And here's the purpose. Father, glorify thy name. Glorify your name. And then a voice comes from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. You see, as he's faced, as he's thinking of this, will I, will I ask him to deliver? No, this is why I've come here, and here's what I'm about. Oh, Lord, as I give myself, may you be glorified. And here's one of the most wonderful things, brothers and sisters, that he's glorifying the Father by saving his people. In other words, He's bringing glory to the Father that the Father would want to save people. That the Father would send His own Son to save people. It brings Him honor that He's a God of that kind of love. And Jesus is earnest in His desire to show forth the great love of the Father who wants to rescue sinners. That's how great His love is. And the Lord Jesus wanted to show how great the love of the Father is. 
John Owen says that the glory of God in the salvation of the church, that is the glory of God that's shown in the salvation of the church, is the center and soul of all his glory. You want glory of God, concentrate. It's the glory that's shown in his love in change in, in, in rescuing his people. So in rescuing, saving his people, Christ is bringing the ultimate glory to his father. And so Owen goes on to say his love for his people, that is Christ's love for his people and his desire of their eternal salvation was inexpressible. His his inexpressible desire to save you, to bring honor to his father who had that same inexpressible desire. So even in Christ's agony on the cross, There's this joy set before him, at least the anticipation of that joy, the sweet anticipation that he will do the father's will and bring glory to his name. The joy of the Lord, we'd have to say, was his strength. And then, of course, the question comes to us. Does that sustain me? Does that drive me? Am I passionate to do his will in that way? No, the angels, we we pray Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, The angels, you know, aren't aren't way away from God hiding in the bushes somewhere in heaven, so to speak, if there were such, hoping the Lord doesn't find them the next time he has something for them to do. You know, like... No, don't tell him I'm here. I, 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 don't want to, I don't want to go right now. You know, that kind of thing. But where are the angels? You know where they are. They're standing there. They're like those huskies we talked about that get angry when another husky is taken to pull the sled. And they're nipping at the heels of that husky because they're not the ones that get to pull the sled. They're so eager to do it. And the angels are like that. It's like. Me, I'll go, I'll go. Just tell me where you want me to go, what you want me to say, where, any, Lord, I'm here. And they have wings to, as even the Puritans would say, to indicate their readiness to obey, the quickness of their obedience. It's their joy, you see. It's their joy to do his will, their joy to glorify his name. We say, Lord, may we do your will, even as the angels do in heaven. Now, Hopefully that will convict us, but also encourage you to say, oh, Lord, bring it about in my life. Because that's what the new covenant is all about. Saving us. Remember, salvation is not just saving you from the punishment of sin, but save you from the practice of sin. Save you from the bad motives of sin. Save you from the laziness of sin and the deadness of heart of sin and the unresponsiveness of sin. To God, to save you, to become an eager giver to God and to others. Isn't that wonderful that he would save you like that? He will save you so that in some way, for the joy set before you of doing God's will and bringing him glory, you will endure anything. But then we need to say this, to delve further into the beauty of this, which is so 
it is inexpressible. It, it just rolls out beyond imagination. His joy, obviously, is the Father's joy. Always remember, the Lord Jesus would say again and again, I do nothing except what I see my Father do. I don't make a move outside of my Father. And I used to think of that as almost compromising or seeming to compromise his deity. You know, that he's so dependent upon the Father. But one aspect of it is the fact that he's speaking as a man, you know, in regard to his Father. But also there's this element of, I will look and taste and smell and feel exactly like my Father. Everything I do. You get me, you get the Father. I will not do one thing outside of a perfect reflection of the Father. So the joy that he had... The joy in saving us is the joy of the Father. And so we find in Luke 15 when the Pharisees are on Jesus because he's mixing it up and he's eating with the tax gatherers and the sinners, and they're grumbling because of that. That's when Jesus gives the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. And he speaks in every case of the joy of heaven when the coin is found, when the sheep is found, when the prodigal son returns. And so, though self-righteous sinners, so that dead, worldly, self-righteous church may not have joy in heaven or joy in, in sinners being brought to Christ, certainly heaven does. That's the point. So God is the one who begins the party, you might say. We're partying! What's that? Somebody's been brought to Christ. You know, that's the Father. That's the picture we're given of the eternal, glorious joy of God in our salvation. And so in the New Covenant in Jeremiah 32, this first has a partial fulfillment in Israel and the ultimate fulfillment in the church. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. With all my heart and all my soul. You see, we couldn't have imagined at that point that all my heart and all my soul would mean that he'd even send his son to die for us. All my heart and all my soul, I will rescue you and cleanse you and transform your life. So it is God's joy to do us good. The Son has the joy of the Father in doing us good. And of course, this applies to the whole of our lives. Doing us good throughout our whole lives, throughout all eternity, every day of your life. In fact, part of the joy that Christ had, not only that He would rescue, but that He would have you forever, you see. That's His joy that He had His heart set upon embracing His people and doing us good every day of our life. To protect us and enrich us and satisfy us. So we read in Isaiah 62, 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I don't know how he can look at us like a bride. Finding us in the red light district, but he does. And then when Isaiah talks about the new heavens and the new earth. And he uses language that is, uh, refers to Israel, speaking in the Old Testament, but it has overtones for the future. 
And in some sense, we're already beginning to taste the new heavens and the new earth even now. The, the blessings of the kingdom have come to us, but they will finally have this glorious end in the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to what he says about that. So think in terms of eternity. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. You remember in Revelation, every tear shall be taken away and And here he says, I will rejoice to do that and be glad in you forever. Can you imagine that God is going to be, could I put it this way, deliriously happy over you forever? But that happiness doesn't start then. It's already started, you see. It's already started in Christ. For the joy set before him. But let me end with this. And this applies to us as well. There was no other way to this joy but the cross. There was no other way to the joy except through the cross. That was what Satan had tempted him in, in the wilderness. Let's go about this another way. Let's bypass all of this obeying the will of your father. Here, I'll I'll exalt you right now. I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. I'll trump your father and and I'll give it free. You don't have to go through all of these things. But, of course, that was a lie. Had he done such, he would have been destroyed, of course. But several times in Hebrews, it makes it very clear. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 10, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Suffering, then exaltation. Hebrews 2.9, we see him, him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, there was no exaltation of the man Jesus Christ except through his suffering. So the joy of his exaltation, with everything that it means for his people's well-being, you see, his exaltation would guarantee the well-being of his people. But it had to be accomplished through suffering. As he thought about what he could do for you, it was only through suffering. Only through the worst imaginable suffering. And for the joy of doing you good at the right hand of God. And glorifying the Father by the good that you received. He endured the cross. And here's the marvelous thing that As he enters into the presence of God, Hebrews also says this, Hebrews 6, 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters 
into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. His horrible suffering, his exaltation, and it says he pulls us right along with him. So we are one with him in suffering, but we're one with him in his resurrection and exaltation. And so Paul can say in 2 Timothy, if we endure, and that's a context of suffering, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And in Revelation 3, John writes, the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I can't get my mind around that. It's not I will have a throne by me and you can sit on that one. It's can you picture this? Jesus scoots over and says, you to sit right here on my throne. I want you to share my reign. I want you to share my glory as a man, the glory that I earned, and I want you to partake of it. And the honor that I've earned, I want you to have it. That's why I suffered, for the joy of benefiting you in that way. So believers, Calvin says, might know that all the evils which they endure will end in salvation and glory, provided they follow Christ. C.S. Lewis says this about Christ. The Father can be well pleased in that Son, capital S, only who adheres to the Father when apparently forsaken. And here's an application for you and me. The Son of God, apparently, obviously, in one real sense forsaken as He was punished by the Father, but not really forsaken. Not still, He was the Beloved. And even in that time of suffering, He entrusted Himself to the Father. Brothers and sisters, that's what pleased the Father on the cross. Not only that He died, but Entrusted, he trusted the Father in the midst of being forsaken by the Father. You're called in the very worst of times, the most terrible things that happened to you at that time, to trust him. To say, Oh Lord, you're the one who died for me. You're the one who suffered not for my sake. I trust you in what you're doing to me and with me. That's what brings God honor. That's what follows in the footsteps of Christ. And so, in the great divorce, one of my favorite little books that Lewis wrote, this was stated, I think earth, if chosen instead of heaven, will turn out to have been all along only a region in hell. 
In other words, if you choose not to follow Christ, to entrust yourself to his love and care, and you decide rather than that to just embrace this world in some form, then you will find that this world is just an anticipation of hell. But if, if earth is put second to heaven, earth will, found to, will be found to have been from the beginning a part of heaven itself. That it begun, it, it's the beginning of heaven. It's the beginning of being with him. I'm going to end with this editorial. And this was written in the New England Chronicle. And, of course, it was written to try to stir these men. But I want you to think about it in much larger terms, in terms of our following after Jesus Christ. Never was a cause more important or glorious than that which you're engaged in. Not only your wives, your children, and distant posterity, but humanity at large, the world of mankind, are interested in it. For if tyranny should prevail in this great country, we may expect liberty will expire throughout the world. Therefore, more human glory and happiness may depend upon your exertions than ever yet depended upon any of the sons of men. We can say that truly, truly, brothers and sisters. The well-being of mankind never more depended upon anybody than the people of Christ. That they would endure that for the joy of serving Christ of gathering more and more people to the glory of God that they would give themselves. He that is a soldier in defense, one more sentence, he that is a soldier in defense of such a cause needs no title. His post is a post of honor. And although not an emperor, yet he shall wear a crown of glory and blessed will be his memory. May God grant you that you will show forth the greatness of God by your trust in Him, even as our Lord Jesus did. May you trust the Lord Jesus this day. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the revelation here of your own endurance of the very punishment of God on behalf of sinners. We cannot fathom the pain, the suffering, the abandonment. We cannot fathom what it was that you became sin on our behalf. We spoke last week of the shame that you endured, the physical pain that you endured. Oh Lord, it was for joy. As you fulfilled your Father's will and glorified his name by doing us good forever. Lord, may we be ashamed for how we've not given ourselves into your will. One so eager to do us good. One filled with the prospect of doing us good. And and having that as a joy set before you of doing us good. And yet, we will not trust you at times. Yet, we will not read of you in the Word. We will not pray to you. Oh Lord, forgive us. We are undone. And we have no hope except that you would, you would pay for our sins. We thank you that you do. And Lord, that you will renew us and change us. We're like the blind men. We're blind to your love. We're blind to the joy of your love. And, and we're dead to it. We're like lepers. We can't feel it sometimes, Lord. We're like men, women paralyzed 
We, we don't move in response to your love. So we come and we cry out with the blind man beside the road, Son of David, have mercy upon us. Make us to see. Make us to feel. Make our hearts burn. Reveal your love. Oh Lord, call us to yourself. And if anyone is here who does not trust in this Christ, this Lord, may they do so now saying, Oh Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Change me. Make me your own forever. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Won't you chase my fears away?